Hello, this is Good One, a podcast about jokes, and I'm your host, Vulture Senior Editor, Jesse David Fox. Each episode, I have a comedian on to play and talk about one of their jokes. Until now. You'll hear what happened in the interview, but essentially Jeff Garland refused to pick a joke. I was bummed, but not surprised, because Jeff doesn't really write jokes as much as go on stage and just improvise a set based on whatever's in his head. So I said this to Jeff, you don't have to pick a joke, but we will start the interview talking about why you wouldn't. And that's what we did, and that's what you're about to hear right about now. So we're here with Jeff Garland. So traditionally, how the podcast works is comedians pick, you know, loosely defined joke or bit of theirs, and we use that to talk about how and, and why they make the comedy they make. You didn't want to pick one, which is okay. Mm-hmm. And I found that really interesting, and I think that's a good place for us to start, which well, is Well, not only did I want to pick one, I just said cancel the yeah, yes. Well, I didn't want to tell that. Were you okay. Not... I, I mean, it was nothing against you. It's yeah. just like, I'm clearly not who should be on the yes. show, you know? <laughs> No, I improvise my stand-up. I don't have – I have stories that, you know, at certain moments when I'm performing, I'm reminded of. Yeah. And I'll tell. Yeah. So I'm not like uh, this purist. Yeah. But I am purist in terms of being – a purist in terms of being in the moment. Yeah. Yeah. Even in inside these stories, do you not feel like what you're doing inside them is a, a joke? Like No, is- because I approach them like, let's say – John Coltrane or Charlie Parker, mm. and by the way, I'm throwing my name <laughs> sure. in there, but the way they would approach a standard. Yeah. And I'm not saying my stories are a standard, but I tell it differently every time. Yeah, but you have the you have the charts or there's certain sort of themes that are throughout it and you can kind of yeah, with them. Yeah, yeah, but I don't uh, prepare in any way with that. So let's back up a little bit, which is, you know, when did you exactly flip to that style? I imagine because you started doing stand up before you studied improv in Chicago. So it had well, to be- it's been a gradual thing. Yeah. Because when I first started at 20 years old, I was a stickler and then I was a stickler, stickler, stickler. And then I eventually worked my way. And I'm talking 20 years before I improvised from an outline. Mm-hmm. And then outline, outline, outline. And I'd say, in terms of being pure the way I am now, three or four years. Yeah. You oh, know? Interesting. Yeah. So so for those t- first 20 years, what you're, you're doing, essentially, storytelling? No. It took about seven years to move into storytelling. Sure. And then um, I realized, you know, the thing is, I do look at myself, if you want to use a word, as a raconteur. <laughs> sure. But here's the thing. I don't think about any of this. You're asking me questions <laughs> that might upset me All right, well, because I don't want to overthink them. Sure. Because it makes it stops making me funny. Oh, I don't want to think too much about my process. <laughs> so this may be one of your shortest inter- interviews ever. But I'll go with it. This will be my Gallagher. I, you'll be like, and I'm done. Yeah, yes. And that's fine. That's yeah. fine. That's If that is what is true to you, then I'm fine. I'm always, picture. by the way, as a man... Uh, I'm 54 years old. I have discovered that being true to yourself is essential. Trusting your gut is essential. Only doing things where you have a choice that bring you joy. If you don't have a, sometimes when you don't have a choice, you have to do things yeah. that don't exactly bring you joy. Yeah. But if you have a choice, 
got to bring you joy, sure. and you got to always be kind to yourself. Right. Those are kind of like my rules. <laughs> so we'll see how I'll, much I'll, we I'll try to be as kind to you as okay. possible. Well, I, I think what it would be useful is to kind of make a distinction because, you know, plenty of comedians might go up with nothing occasionally. Or, no, they don't. Or or maybe if they're working out something, they might go no, up with an idea. With of, an idea. To start. Or they usually have more structure. There are very – I think Billy Connolly might be – one yeah. who's done before I did it, yeah. what I do. Uh, Sinbad uh, also does it. Sinbad does also <laughs> do it, by the way. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, he does. Those are the only that I know that will go up for an hour right. with the intention of not necessarily doing anything. Well, no, I have an intention to, I mean, to entertain, yes. hopefully enlighten, you know, make laugh. But I, I don't know if they do one thing that I do. Yeah. And that's literally go up. The only thought sometimes when I hit the stage is, oh, I'm walking to the stage. <laughs> oh, the audience is applauding. Oh, start talking. And that might even be too much thinking. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know if they don't have in the back of their heads one or two things. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I've never discussed it with yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. So it really is like tabla rasa. You I get would on say stage. about 50% of the time or so, I have nothing. When I have something, I swear, it's... I'd say the other 50% is split down the middle between something that happened to me that day yeah, yeah. and something that happened to me the other day. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Which is interesting because all comedians say this happened to me the other day, but it actually yeah. means like three years ago. Yeah. In, in the way that you describe it, you know, TJ and Dave, TJ Janidowski Jan- and, and, and David Pasquazi. Where they start, I've seen them perform improv, and where yeah. they start, they how they look at each other determines how they start they don't yes. even get a suggestion yes. do you feel like it's similar to that it's like very you see, much so you see the audience because i'm trained the same way david i was trained with david pasquazi <laughs> sure. and i came up with david pasquazi so it is a similar kind of thing and actually improvising with david pasquazi is very pure and natural to me also tj i've improvised with both of them it's very natural for me yeah. to improvise with them very similar style how do you then what is how do you view your relationship to the audience then in that case where you're going up with nothing you know you're going to entertain them no no it's not a matter of entertaining but, them as much as i want to communicate i want to be present and i want them to dig me i can't i i won't you know song you know dance yeah, sure sure you know I, I, it's like um i want them to be in relationship with me if they are yeah. it's a much better show if they give me nothing, it's no show. Yeah. <laughs> and usually it's varying somewhere from the middle on up, mm-hmm. occasionally middle on down. <laughs> but usually 90% of the time they're giving me something, if not a lot. Do you view it as a conversation between you two, but you're the only one really talking? No. Um, I view it – I'm. In, it's a conversation where – it's kind of like having a conversation – with somebody who talks more than you do. <laughs> sure. But it is a conversation. It is a give and take. Yeah, yeah. And I'm very open to their reactions. What is, you know, what is the ideal, you know, there's comedy clubs, there's comedy theaters, there's improv theaters. Do you have a sense of traditionally what is the best context? The best thing for me is to be in a, a classical theater in terms of three to 500 seats, Maybe even 99 seats. I shouldn't even say three. Yeah. But a theater is the best place for me. Mm. Not a comedy club, not a big theater of thousands of people. I've done both of those many of times. Yeah. And they they both work very well. Yeah. But 
Are you talking about the best? Yes, yes. The best for me is a theatrical environment. Intimacy. Because even yeah. when you're like in a Broadway-sized theater, it's very intimate. Yeah. The And this might be where it pushes over to what will be an annoying question, but we'll what? see. So every comedian, you know, what is the thing that – how would you describe the thing that strikes you to be like, this is something that there might be something that's funny in? You know um, – In so, terms of the story or whatever? Yeah, or just like – because we all live a life and comedians have whatever it is. They're tuned to be like, there's something here. Right. And for some comedians, it's like, oh, this annoys me or this makes me angry right. or this makes me happy. Right. How would you describe that? Okay. For- <laughs> so to do that, first off, I don't analyze that. Yeah. But things occur to me. I say them. Hopefully, it's a shared experience yeah. with people in the audience. I've always felt that way. Look at the way he looks at it. I mean, that's too much thinking for them. Yeah. But the point being is there's hopefully a connection between myself and the audience on something that I'm feeling yeah. that I experience that happens externally to me. So I am hoping for that connection, yeah. and it occurs to me. And the difference between me and the audience is, or the audience and, and myself, is that I have the gift yeah. of making it funny. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that's that's really interesting. It's essentially like you're talking, and based on them seeing also interested in it, then you're yeah. like, okay, we'll talk about it for as long as you're interested. It has a lot of background in Ralph, Ralph Waldo Emerson. Self-reliance is the key to my comedy. I say what I think. And, uh, you know, other people might go, why didn't I think of that? Or, you know what I mean? It's like I have the self-reliance and the confidence to go up and say it. So I I know you love photography. Yes, I love photography. Yes. I'm a big collector of photography Uh books. And uh, photography books are the best way to enjoy photography and learn how to be a good photographer. What I realize, I always love photography, but like unlike painters, a book is not the medium in which they're working. Right. Where photographers in many ways were kind of making these collections. Photographers are making collections to be seen on the Internet. Yeah. To be seen in person, to be seen in book. Yeah. (laughs) uh, To be seen in a Film, even, if they hold it up long yeah, enough yeah. on the screen. Whereas painting, I agree with you, it needs to be seen in person. So, And so I was talking to my art director at Vulture, and we'll see if this, this sparks with you. I was thinking about how so my two kind of favorite art forms in many ways are comedy and photography, but specifically street photography. Yes. And I do think they share a similarity of everyone's looking at the same things, and those two mediums allow us to see through another right. person's senses. Right. Is that experience, as a person who takes photographs and does comedy, is it similar? Most definitely. And I can name a photographer who is the closest between the two. His name is Matt Stewart. And he is, uh, I think, brilliant. I think he's a genius. <laughs> yeah. And he has taken, there's another guy named Craig Sametko who has had some mm-hmm. really great moments. But Matt Stewart is my guy, my go-to guy who uses film photography, and he finds moments where no one else are gonna find, will find that moment, and it is perfection, and it is always funny. And that, to me, he's my favorite photographer in terms of living now photographers. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that I, I will laugh looking through certain books because, yeah. and even if it's just, have you looked light, at Matt Stewart yet? I'm not, but I. Will. Oh, you're you are oh, going to be so happy. <laughs> I'm actually jealous that you can experience him. You can go to his website I will. and there see his stuff and order his book and stuff. Yeah, he is he's magical. He just became a ma- uh, uh, 
Is it Magnum Photographer? Yeah, he's part oh, of Magnum. Awesome. Yeah, he's he's quite w- wonderful. Yeah, there's. Uh, I'm happy to talk about him for the rest <laughs> of our interview. I, I would. I'm like that in terms of you know Jack Benny's my favorite all time comedian. Yeah. And one thing that he was known for is his generosity towards other comedians. Yeah, yeah. That's how I feel. Well, that is something that I've known. You, you know, there you you helped Dennis Leary and John Stewart with early specials, but it seems like you help young comedians th- throughout. And yes. Uh, young comedians. There's a young comedian I'm working with named Heather Pasternak, yeah. who I think has great potential. Uh, Matt Edgar, another young comedian. So varying degrees, sure. uh, I throw myself out there to help these people. By the way, not unless I'm asked. Yes. But I'm not charging sure. any of them. When I was younger, and I wasn't as established, but had a reputation as someone who helped comedians, and I didn't, I wasn't earning any money. I did charge comedians, but a lot of them weren't my friends. Yeah, yeah. And I would charge time to be with the comedians. So you know, for a younger comedian, where I mean, obviously those are Heather Pasternak, you can yeah. say her. Heather Pasternak. Yeah. What? What it, what advice are you giving and what is the perspective that you're offering? It's not a matter of where there's specific advice that I'm giving. It's what do they need? Heather might open for me and there'll be a video of her performance and later on we'll sit and go through it. So, And we'll point different. out like, oh, you should have. Not should have. Could have. Could have, yes, but I don't use should have or yeah, could have. Yeah. I just use like you'd want to. That's interesting that. You know, that's what I've, I was so curious about that because that sort of like craft consideration right. mixed with the fact that people know that you just go up with kind of nothing. nothing right. and, and it does make sense, but it's, it is an interesting square to circle, circle square in terms of like how right. do you connect these things? Well, because they are connected. The only difference is, as opposed to mine being written down, it, it's floating around my head yeah. yet to be discovered. <laughs> but it comes in the format of the style in which I say things. But that being said, I am going to be crafting some assemblance of material because I'm hoping to work my way to a Broadway show now. That's my yeah. focus. I'm probably going to play clubs for like the next six months or so on a consistent basis. And then I'm going to start moving until into theatrical environments and then probably off-Broadway and then Broadway. So then if you're going to, to transition to material, right. how do you then make sure it still feels like the part of the stand-up that you... I, well, there's two thoughts. Yeah. One is I will tell it differently every night. So that's... But it'll be a structure in terms of I have the same thing I'm going to every night. I also transcribe my improvisational shows. So the material that's in there will make up my show. I've probably already got... I'll just be conservative and say I at least have two hours of material over the last three years of improvising. I'll do an hour and a half show, and I'll probably take an hour of material for an hour and a half show and see where it ends (laughs) up. You know, so at least a half hour will be truly improvised. Yeah. And the other hour will be told differently every night. Is that Would it be revolving around a theme or sort or just? Oh, it'll be a theme in terms of humanity. My humanity. That's a lame name. That's a lame title for a show. But it'll be my humanity for sure. Not like my little funny ideas or, you know what I mean? I I want it to be substantial. Substantial enough to be a theatrical piece. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting that you you say that because I was thinking about watching your stand-up. And I've I've seen you live and I've seen you – I've seen the specials that you – or things you've recorded. Yeah. There's even your live from Caroline's clip from the 90s you can find. Oh, really? How about that? (laughs) But a lot of the times – when I took out the idea that you're 
took out the idea that you'd be writing jokes or not writing jokes. Mm. The if there is a joke or what is the the bit of it is you. Right. It's not like laugh at me, but it's like I'm here to be laughed. Well, no, it laugh laugh at me, laugh with me. Yeah. Uh hopefully laugh at yourselves, but I I mostly will it's myself trying as a human being to make it through the world. Yes. So I will look foolish. I will have made mistakes. I will have not trust my gut in some of these stories. Yeah. Therefore, laugh at me or laugh with me because you've experienced something of the same. Yeah. Um, Chris Rock in a recent interview was talking about, you know, every singer has three or four songs and they just rewrite that right. song. And he's like, I have probably four or five jokes and I write different. You know, like it might be ten minute, a 10 minute bit about whatever, but essentially it's about how men and women are different. Right. Um, and he thinks all comedians essentially operate in that. Let me say something. Okay. I couldn't respect Chris Rock or Jerry Seinfeld more, but those two fuckers, <laughs> and I say fuckers, I'm yeah. more friendly with Jerry than I am with Chris, although Chris I've always had a great relationship with. Yeah. They have their theories, and they just shove them down my throat. <laughs> and by the way, I was with Jerry last week in New York, and he had very strong theories on things that I disagreed with. Yeah. But it's not worth arguing because he has to be right, and so does Chris. So let him have his four-theory thing, but I disagree with that, okay? I'm not going to go off on my theory because the truth is true to everyone, yeah. okay? But those two guys in particular, and by the way— it's because Chris is so influenced by Jerry. Yeah. So if you want to know who Jerry Jr. is, it's Chris. He's passed it down to him. But Jerry and Chris are very, they're very, they're very much sticklers to the rules yes. that they see fit. Jerry feels, and he might be right, that I'm funnier in a suit because I look like I'm trapped. And he thinks I'm funny. He could be right. Yeah. I'm not necessarily comfortable in a suit. I know that... And I'll use the word iconic. I'm kind of iconic in a suit because I'm on an iconic TV show where mostly I wear a suit. Yeah. Okay. And so uh, the, the person, Jeff Garland, not Jeff Green, the character, has suits. I enjoy wearing suits. Mm. But I may not. I don't like necessarily performing in a suit. That's why I was laughing so hard when we brought it up because I have interviewed Jerry before. And they like to have these like condensed Me, yeah. Yeah, rules. Rules. <laughs> Fuck that. What does that have to do with comedy? Interesting that you mentioned the suit thing because I think every artist, every comedian, there's there's a they're on a spectrum of how much they're motivated by the creation, the thing that right. they're making, and the how much they're motiv- motivated by creating it. If that makes sense, right? Like so, for a comedian, it's like how much do they care about the set that is done, or how much do they care about being being the ideal situation for them to right. create a thing. I have a sense of where you are in that balance, but you obviously you've made. You don't them. actually. Well, I have a sense, but I, this sense. Is, no. why your question? Well, I, I mean, every comedian yeah. has a, a um, they have a sense of their decorum, how they want to be felt. The only thing that I owe the audience is respect for them as human beings and their intelligence. When you set design for a special, I think that's important, and what you wear. I do think is important in terms. It's like, what are you wearing when you shoot a movie? What costume? What thing? Mm-hmm. And it might doesn't have to be a costume, but it has to represent where you're at, what you're thinking. Yeah. But I mean, the, the idea with this, you wearing a suit, which was interesting, is that it, there's a there's a conflict between it. It may or may not 
make you funny or whatever, but also it might not make you comfortable. Right. And then as and your desires to be comfortable, but your desires well, I am also maybe comfortable, not- but not as comfortable. Yeah. As I am in, you know, I have like kind of like a uniform. I, I noticed, and that's a, and it's going to sound crazy. I wear Lacoste T-shirts mm-hmm. because I loved, when I was a kid, I always wanted alligator shirts. Sure. I love the alligator. Yeah. Like, I, I never would be caught dead in any sort of polo shirt. Well, I'd be caught dead. I have no choice. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I love Lacoste yeah. uh, as a brand. I love their styling. And even the pants that I wear are Lacoste pants wow. because they fit the way that no other pants have felt fit uh shoes i i I will either wear like um there's a few different kinds like i I like um uh, doc martin with my orthotics and new balance with my orthotics Mm. i wear orthotics because i have very flat feet and being on stage for a long time it can really my favorite shoe of all time though are puma clyde's not puma suede even though they look the same they license the name like every three years. It's called Clyde. Mm-hmm. And when I was a kid, it was called the Puma Clyde. So, and when I was a kid, my mom would never buy me them. She bought me PF Flyers or just plain Converse. So I always dreamed of someday owning a p- pair of Puma Clydes. Now I got like three pairs. Not that crazy. <laughs> not that crazy. But, and I wear them on occasion. But so, my, yeah, do, would you notice an audience reacting to you differently? If, if, I mean, it's hard to know because every audience is No, different. they would react different to me if like Richard Pryor, one of a special, I wore a red suit. Yeah. Like if I wore, wore something, like, which he, by the way, looked back on as a mistake. Because it's too distracting? It just was too much. It was nonsense. So... To me, do you know if Eddie Murphy regretted wearing the leather suit? I never asked him that. Um, although, on some levels, his idol, as far as I know, well, his idol comedically was Pryor, yeah. and his idol period was Elvis. So I think that sort of fit into yeah. that. Maybe it was the red for Pryor and the red for you know yeah, the yeah. leather for Elvis. I don't know. And by the way, that's a compliment to Eddie Murphy because. He he's actually the most charismatic and brilliant performer I have ever worked with. Wow! That includes Eddie, Larry David. That includes uh, uh, that includes everyone. Yeah. And no offense to anyone else. Uh, by the way, Eddie also worked at the like. I'm sad that Eddie doesn't still do stand-up because the Eddie of today would have so many interesting things to to say. <laughs> yeah. He was a boy when he performed before. Therefore. I'm fascinated by it because he's such a great performer, but I think, man, what he could be. Yeah, and I hear that he keeps – the story that I always hear is that he keeps on watching stand-up. Like he watches everyone. Oh, he's a big fan of stand-up, and he's still funny. Do you know what Eddie Murphy loves more than anything? Making music. And he's not going to put it out there because he doesn't need the criticism. Yeah. He loves to be in his studio and make music. That's his passion. So then it's like why – well, if you, and if you're, well, no, if you're I'm sure it. he's even come close to going down the hill to the comedy he store. He says it all the time. He, he likes to float it in interviews. But yeah, it's, but he's it's not happening anytime soon. But the thing that he's going to have – here's the uh, – it's really – got to tell you, and this is not an ego thing because I recognize ego and throw it away. But I would love to – just help him get started again. Yeah. Because I would love to help him motivate him down the path of the true artist. Not that I'm a true artist. That's for other people to decide. Yeah, yeah. I just do what I do. But I would love to push him down the path of not worrying about what people think. 
and knowing that his greatness will come out and he will find his voice again. But it'll be a little bit of a rocky road. I think that's that's what he doesn't want to go through because, you know, discussing it with him when I did, the expectations are so high, yeah. and I think that that's too intimidating to him. Yeah, I mean, else it's, their expectations are so high, and, like, best case scenario, they laugh at you just because you're Eddie Murphy. Like, it'll take you so long to get... Well, by the way, they will. Yeah. They will. But he's got to get to... Here's the thing. He's so naturally funny that he, he could do what I do yeah. and be better at me than doing <laughs> it. He could yeah. in a very short time. He, I think, in all sincerity, yeah. Eddie Murphy is the greatest comedian who ever lived. Now, Pryor is the greatest stand-up. You can look at someone like Jack Lemmon as maybe the greatest comedic actor of all time, or someone else like sure. Chaplin, even, what have you. But if Eddie Murphy worked at stand-up, he would be the greatest stand-up comedian of all time. That's interesting. That, yeah. is, that is a distinction. I think he's talking to... Um, oh, yeah, he's saying why he wouldn't just go back to stand-up. It's like, look, I'm not, like, trying to be... I'm, pl- I'm like, in Chaplin territory right. in terms of, like, the greats of all history like right. it's hard it's not like oh i'm just like a comedian coming no, back he would be him coming back is he would be the greatest stand-up comedian who ever lived if he put it in now and yeah. did it he's, he's so young yeah i think he's 55 we're around the same age he could do it and do it with damage you know i haven't seen eddie in a long time i'd love to talk to him about it and just really you know but, you know, the dude's so comfortable in who he is. He has nothing to prove, but just knowing he, he makes the word. Here's the thing. It's about contributing. And Lord knows the dude contributes as an actor. Yeah. But, man, the contribution he can make as a stand-up artistically. I mean, look, I like Kevin Hart, for example. Man, I think that dude's great. Ain't near as good as Eddie Murphy. Yeah. He is, he's just, he's the Babe Ruth. He's he's just that much better yeah. than everybody else, including Chris Rock. Because Chris Rock, great stand-up, his charisma and his naturalness cannot hang with Eddie. And that's saying something about Chris Rock, who's in the Hall of Fame, yeah. who's one of the all-time greats, you know what I mean? Yeah. And the names I'm pulling out are so yes. spectacular. But Eddie Murphy is that much better than everyone. Yeah. If he just put it, if he focused it on this, that energy that he Well, no, he could still do films and do his thing. But if he really took the risks of being who he truly is on stage um, and not worrying about the laugh, because if there was a guy who doesn't have to worry about (laughs) uh, uh, getting the audience to laugh, it's him. Yeah, yeah. To get back to you. Okay, fine, whatever. Might as well talk about you a little bit. Um, Uh So, you know, you do have some things that become material, yeah. you know, if you're improvising, what do you look for to make it so like, oh, this is a thing that I should be revisiting? Like, what is it that... Uh, I think I just use one word, timelessness. I'm more interested in that than something about our president or about something that's uniquely now. Will this be timeless? That's my big question. And that was what, what, what I choose eventually for my material in the show I end up doing will be about timelessness, something that 25 years from now will still hold yeah. light. Um, there, Which what, the human condition usually that. serves that. There's a, one joke that you you seem to uh, will revisit, and you, uh, it was in your uh, the 2008-2009 special, and you also did on The Tonight Show, which is, uh, I guess I'd call Baron Von Cream. Oh, but that's not in my – I will never do that yeah. again. But I did have one – The small... reason I won't do that again is that's in my movie Handsome. Yes. I, have I you seen going... Handsome yet? Yeah. 
Oh, how about that? Okay. That um, I did have a question about that joke in particular because yeah, I love that joke. It is without a doubt the best story I've ever told. Oh, interesting. Just without in terms a of doubt. laughs or in terms of both. The, the, there's a reveal at a certain point, and that laugh is so big. I don't know what to say. <laughs> the earlier version is. You meet, he does the thing with the cream, then you meet him on the plane, and then he talks right. about Waffle House yeah. pussy. Yes. And then later versions, it's more about the difference between creams and lotions. And well, I add that, yes. Um, I learned that from my friend uh, Courtney Culkin, who one day, she saw me perform at Caroline's. She said, do you know the difference between a cream and a lotion? I said, no, and she explained it to me, so I added that in. Yeah. So um, how true are your st- stories? And not in terms, like, they might be emotionally true, but, like, in terms of... How that story or just in general, when you tell that, stories, how no, no, there is no in general because there's no in general. Yeah. That story is 100 percent false. There's not one iota of truth, <laughs> except that there was a black man, an old black man in line ahead of me at the airport going through security. And I imagined that exchange with the woman at oh, security. Wow. And then I imagined that he was I didn't at first it was just him with his creams and lotions. Yeah. Not knowing the difference. Then I thought, well, what if he's sitting next to me on the plane? Then I thought about the whole thing. And then at the same time, then uh, at some point, I was performing in Atlanta, and I was with my uh, friend. Who was I with? It's very important to me that I always say (laughs) who I was with. I was with um, Aaron Foley, comedian Aaron Foley. And we were sitting in Waffle House, and I said to her, just my voice, man, I love Waffle House pussy. She burst out laughing, and on stage I kept on talking about Waffle House pussy. Then I added it to the story. So it built and built and built to this story that seems so real. Yeah. And then I put it in the movie. I don't want to say how it's in the movie, but it's in the movie Handsome, and so now never to be done. Yeah, it's 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 very much in the movie. Yeah, it's very important. (laughs) Yeah. In the movie, it's not just a let me have fun with this. Yeah. So I'm done with that as a story per se. Um, but my stories, I'll never reveal, uh, but, but oh, I'll say this almost ever actually outside of that story, everything is mostly true. Yeah. It started with something true. Yeah. Whereas that story started with a brief moment yeah. to lead to a whole like five minute story. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I'm glad I told it on the tonight show and I'm glad that, uh, it's in my movie now, but it's done. Yeah. It had it. it that one really ran a course. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Cause it really is like, Oh, it's this. And then, then you're in this, like, yeah. Oh, what a life for that little small. What a life for just me standing at security is where that all That's started. So from. Cause I was like, if it is a true story, it is amazing that like, Oh, what like life brings you, but it's even smaller of an interaction that you had that you like right. were able to use in so yep, many ways. My imagination, man. We'll be right back with more Jeff Garland after this word from our sponsor. Hi, it's Jesse uh, from this podcast you're currently listening to. I hope you like it. Um, actually, so this is an ad for the podcast. So if you do like it, you know the drill. Please uh, rate the show and write a review on Apple Podcasts. If you do, I'll Venmo you $30. Uh, oh, wait, I'm hearing I'm not allowed to do that. All right. So if you do, uh, I guess I'll say thank you on a future episode and tell you uh, that you're good. Like Lulu Live who wrote a comment that said, good one, and under it, she wrote, great show. I don't know why I submitted it to her, but you're good, Lulu Live. Thank you so much. Uh, or another one is, hey224456, under the comment, good job, wrote, funny. So thank you, hey224456. 
you are good. Hey, two, two, four, four, five, six. So that could be you. You could be, hey, two, two, four, four, five, six. I will say thank you. I will say you're good. I love you. I'm in love with you. Uh, have a good one. Enjoy the rest of the show. All right. We are back with Jeff Garland. So I also, of course, want to talk about impro- improvising in a more traditional sense, which yes. is like in scenes. Right. Do you remember, let's let's kind of back up again, which was when you first kind of started, you first kind of found yourself in Chicago, when it kind of clicked, it's like, oh, this is kind of where I'm really comfortable in terms of interacting in scenes or in acting or performing. It, it didn't click in Chicago. Oh, interesting. Because in Chicago, in Second City, I'd walk out on stage and the audience would love me immediately. So I thought, oh, all right, in scenes, there's something about me that makes the audience mm-hmm. go, he's the funny one. Uh, but my peers didn't dig me that much. Yeah. On the flip side, when I did stand-up, my peers were on my side and dug me. However, I bombed a lot. And bombing, my, my peers loved it when I bombed because then I completely played to them. Um, so it was interesting that audiences in comedy clubs didn't grab hold of me. Yeah. But in, in that second city, they completely did. So then it, did it not really come back? For, oh, well, you guess you were doing stand up, so then. Well, what happened is that Second City influenced my stand up in a big way. And I can't say my stand up ever influenced Second City <laughs> because then you're becoming more isolated. But as I moved, I always knew that I really enjoyed improv- improvisation and I was good. So I never really got to a point at Second City where my peers embraced me. However, I have hired most of those peers for Second City. I mean, for us, uh, yeah. uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm. Success is the greatest revenge. <laughs> it really is. And also knowing that— I thought that, that was going to reveal your benevolence, but it— No, no it, well, it is because I don't care. Yeah. I'm not thinking about it like, ha-ha. <laughs> Got it, but yeah. it is wonderful that people think you forget their cruelties towards you. And the great revenge is to be really nice to people who weren't very nice to yeah, you yeah. and to employ people that weren't very nice to you. I didn't use it to take advantage of the situation as a power move or an ego move. It was just a enjoyable move. Yeah, yeah. How much improvising were you doing, like scene improvising were you doing before the sort of Kerber Enthusiasm special? And then so obviously that it's Curb is now known for how improvised it was, but how natural was it filming that? Very natural. Here's what it was. Here's the difference. So I moved out to Los Angeles. I say here, you're usually based in New York, but we're in Los Angeles. I would improvise with Second City alumni. Got it. And again, didn't have the best time. Did the best I could, but did not have the best time. And also the difference between myself and most, there were other people who were just like me where it was to work out. But for a lot of other people, they'd hear word that somebody was in the room or even not, just the potential, and it was all about them. So I became more of a team player in their eyes because I was always about the other person. So I grew that way because I was only concerned about getting better. Whereas immediately upon doing Curb Your Enthusiasm, man, everything in my head was about Larry, not about me looking good. And that just grew from there. And I do think that I should win Best Supporting Actor every year. And no, wait till I hear why I say this. Because generally, Supporting Actor is Best Person Who's Not the Star. Yeah, yeah. But if you look at who's supporting, like really supporting on Curb Your Enthusiasm, 
in the scene, I make it all about everybody else. Yeah. If I'm funny, great. But it's all about everybody else. Yeah. So I am a true uh, supporting actor. And there are a few others. Yeah, that's, uh, that is interesting because that is natural to improvise. And also, so works as your character as a manager. Right. Right. So right. it's like it would yeah. make sense that you're, you, all you'd do would be like, one, because it helped tell Larry the character to be like, right. yeah, that is crazy. That is weird yeah, that yeah. it's happening. But that also right. helps the plot move forward. It helps the plot move forward. There's a deal of exposition. Uh, but, you know, I'm allowed to be funny. and But I don't. It's it's not it just happens naturally within the course of a scene. Yeah. Whether it's used or not, that's not. It's ultimately not up to me. Even though I'm a producer, you know, they'll go, you know, you know why I cut that? You know, it's like yes, I know why. You know, so some some things I've done that I've been very proud of in terms of, you know, making a choice beyond exposition. Yeah. Uh, have been on the cutting room floor. <laughs> so. I mean, Curb works from an outline and 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 scenes are a involved. very specific story so what outline. Is, what is like? What is an out? What does it look like? You get it's it. Seven pages long, and it's essentially the story of the show. Yeah. Very little of it is very, not very much of it is dialogue. Yeah. I mean, I may get one line that Larry will write per episode. Yeah, yeah. That he wants me to say. Other than that. I know the story. I know what has to be said, and I just say it. So, like, a scene starts, and is there, like, okay. There's a paragraph or two paragraphs about the scene. Got it. But we will adapt it to what's going on. So, and it's generally first drafts. It's not like, if Larry rewrites, he just rewrites himself, you know, or he'll bounce it off Jeff Schaefer, who's one of the producers. But it's not like we have a room or there's rewrites or did did you get the new draft? (laughs) It doesn't work that way. There's just, here's a draft, it's an outline, and then you'll find stuff on the day, and then it goes where it is. Yeah. And then, I mean, could you improvise something that would change the plot in any way? Most definitely. Yeah. But you don't necessarily want to. If something's working, something's not, maybe, you know, but I do a different take every time unless he asked me to repeat something specifically. So and and then you also shot your movie with an outline in a similar way as your outline. No, I shot my movie Dealing with Idiots with with an outline that I never showed the actors. I told them before the scene what the scene was about, whereas uh, Handsome. My Netflix mystery movie. I like saying that. That was from a script with very little improvisation. Oh, interesting. And I want to make one clarification. People think you improvise because you're trying to fix something or the script's not that good. If you're improvising because the script's not that good, you're in trouble. Yeah. You have to improvise to sort of like it occurs to you. You say it. Yeah. And so you can be fearless when you're doing a movie with me that I'm directing that I've written and I co-wrote this with Andrea Siegel. But you can be fearless in terms of I'm going to take a chance here. I'm good. What's the worst that will happen? Don't do that again. Do this or that kind of work. Maybe try this. Yeah. You know, it's it's um, it's very open. To yeah. interpretation. I like actors really learning their lines, and then I say, forget forget it yeah. now, and just say whatever you want. And you know what's remarkable? Generally, they stick to the script. Yeah, they just, like, say it in the cadence or the words and way you would say it. So ultimately, the script No, plays... it's not even that. It's yeah. not even that. I'm talking about they will stick. Like, they I'll learn just... it. Because I say, learn it, and then you know, it. and then forget it. So... The worst thing you the, the thing that you don't want as an actor as a director is the actor thinking about what they're saying where they should only be thinking about saying it. Yeah. And whatever performance if they're in the moment and they and they know the words or know what the scene's about they're safe. You know as I said 
know what the scene's about. So let's say you have no idea what you say next, yeah. but you know what the scene's about. Just say something. <laughs> you mentioned you wrote, you wrote this with a partner. I believe you all your films you worked with a partner? I, I usually like collaborating yeah, I was, with people. I, was thinking that, it, I write by myself a lot. Like I'll write drafts by myself. I'll rewrite drafts by myself. But um, this was collaborated with Andrea Siegel. Yeah, because I've, I've heard you in interviews talking to comedians. But like, I was thinking maybe we'd write something together. And I was like, do you just like like trying different partnerships out? I most certainly do. I love working with lots of people. I also like working with the same crew and the same people if it works. Yeah. As long as it's a fun experience every time. But, hey, man, I just like I just like gro- grooving with people and yeah. seeing what happens. Uh, to that point, um, I've heard in one of the interviews, I think it's when you talked to Larry on your podcast, you said the hardest part is casting or casting the right people. Yeah, well, the ca- it's just as important as any other aspect. Yeah. So what are you looking... You know, what are you looking for in an improviser? And and, and in Handsome, where you're casting, what are you looking for an actor? An actor. I'm not looking for anything, man. It's truly one of those things that actors make the mistake, and they ask their agent or their agent cast the casting director, what are they looking for? Yeah. I'll know it when I see it. As a matter of fact, when I was casting Handsome, there was a part for the daughter of my next-door neighbor. While Allison Jones, who's the best casting director Mm -hmm. in the business— no offense to the other casting directors, no, who are wonderful, but it's kind of like that Eddie Murphy thing. You know, plenty of them are Hall of Famers and great, yeah. but uh, Allison Jones is yeah. that much better. She brought in J.J. Toda, who is a uh, gay young man uh, who is very distinct in his style. And I said, oh, well, the girl's going to have a best friend. And I cast him. Just because you met him? I, well, I met him for the daughter. Oh, interesting. He would have been the son, the gay yeah. son. But I thought, no, I'm going to keep the daughter, but I'm making this guy her best friend. And it was a whole new character that added so much to the movie. So now imagine, let's imagine him going the way a normal actor would. Well, they're looking for a woman. Oh, well, I guess I'm not going to go in. Well, go in anyhow. Well, I'm not going to get it because I'm not a woman. Oh, I'm not going to get it because I'm not what they're looking for. Yeah. But see, if you bring whatever you bring to the table on that particular day with that particular uh, director or producer, writer, whatever it is, what is it about you that's unique and special? And J.J. Toda is so extraordinary and so special that I hired him. Yeah. I wrote a part for him. Yeah. And I was with my writer. She was in casting with yeah. me. And we looked at each other and went, let's do this, you know. So there are no rules. Bring what you bring. Yeah. And don't ask for a response after you're done. Either you got the job or you didn't. Similarly, but what do you like in a scene partner or an improviser, regardless of... Then what do I like? What, yeah. what you're hopeful for is that they're striving to make you look good. Yeah. Because even if I'm the lead, like in Handsome, I'm looking to make the other actor look good. Interesting. That's the. I don't just take that on when I'm a supporting actor. That's myself as an actor, period. You know, I I have nothing until you give me something, and I want to give you something to work with. So it's like handing a ball back and forth, you know, or playing catch, if you will. I'm looking for someone who's a a listener and giving. I wanted to ask you, Shelley Berman plays Larry David's dad on Kerbin, and he similarly is a comedian with improv and an acting, a stand-up with an an acting and an improv background. Yes. Um, He He is one of my... Great influences. Yeah, I can only imagine. And one of the pioneers of what I do. So uh, what was it like talking to him? Did you talk about 
that particular? I mean, I talked about everything with him. I, yeah. I. Do you think he learned anything from? I learned millions of things from something him. specific. No. All right. It's not like oh, I learned from him this. Yeah. But I. By the way, I learned a lot just from watching him act. He, um, he's pretty brilliant. And no, I, I talked to him for hours about stand-up, about improv and its approach to stand-up. I talked to him about acting. I talked to him about everything. He taught me to always uh, use the word peanut when I'm stuck because it's funny. You know what I mean? I got. He's nothing. not a Jerry Seinfeld follower, Chris Rock, where we'd be like, okay, to do comedy, you have to do this. No, there was no specific yeah. set of rules. No. Curb has been on hiatus for five years. Five years. So what is it like getting back in that? Is there a certain amount of I'm friends group? with all the people that I work with. I see them all on a regular basis. So it wasn't like, oh, I haven't seen you in five years. And it came came very easy. Yeah, because it's the same. And we all of us rhythm. like I remember the first scene that I did that we shot coming back was a scene with myself, Larry, and uh and uh JB Smoove. And these are friends of mine. Yeah. So it was just like it was like we worked the week before. It was not <laughs> difficult and it was not it was just it was wonderful. In in those scenes, how much do you f- I mean it is hard to answer but like how much do you feel like you're playing yourself like in your brain are you No, I'm always Jeff Green. Yeah. I'm never playing myself. At all times I just you're put that it. on like a suit, literally like a suit mostly. And um no, I'm I'm that person. What comes out is myself. Um, so people, if people like the character, it's because they like Jeff Garland, because that character, Jeff Green, has no morals, no integrity. He's only about making, he's the best friend a guy like Larry could have. Yeah, yeah. I don't need any plot spoilers or hints, but six years is, five, six years is a lot of time of just like a person's life, both right. your life yeah. and, and, and Larry's life. So in, in this way, on a, almost on, uh, on a personal level, how did this season feel different at a personal level it was the most fun i had it was the least stressful least worrisome on the other hand i was filming the goldbergs at the exact same time i had one week off christmas to new year's other than that it was one day one one day another one week one yeah one week another two weeks one one week another two weeks two weeks you know one hour on one, seven hours on the other, eight hours on the you know. So that was very stressful, and it took away a lot of the joy. Yeah. But it didn't affect my work in either. Yeah. But it was – it would have been the most fun I think I would have ever had <laughs> in my you, life. You had a temper that – oh. If, if – it would have been yeah. on Curb if I didn't have to do both shows. <laughs> So that sound means it's time for the laughing round. So it's, okay. like, it's like a lightning round, but because it's comedy, it's a laughing round. That's the lamest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> and yet the I laughing, say dear God, man. <laughs> so uh, I put it at the end. Okay, so the laughing round. Yeah, so it's like lightning. And there's no such word as laughing, correct? Not not until now. Well, they, We're well it would be in the whatchamacallit dic- dictionary. The um, uh, Oh, uh, Urban Dictionary. Urban Dictionary. Yeah. I, I should check. If my, oh, no, I'm if sure it's not there are... yet. But keep yet. it going. Keep yeah. it going. I did say the word yet. I want to be positive. I appreciate it. Okay. It's not a word I'll ever use again. <laughs> Aw. Right, sorry. It's okay. Right. I, I know that your comedy doesn't have jokes, but do you have a favorite joke joke or a street joke? Oh, I do. <laughs> I have two. One is just both. funny that no one gets, which is long, and I'm not going to do that Got one. It. But I'm going to do the short one, which is actually my favorite joke of all time. A man goes to the doctor. 
He says, Doctor, I'm so overwhelmed when I wake up in the morning. I'm full of stress, full of anxiety, full of tension, full of dread. Uh, forget going outside. I can't even open up the window. I just want to lay in bed with the covers over me. Uh, I just can't do anything. I don't know what to do. Help me, doctor. The doctor says, I'll tell you what you do. You get out of that bed and you go see Coco the Clown. He's in town now performing. He'll make you laugh, make you forget about all your problems. Mm-hmm. And the man says, but doctor, I am Coco the Clown. <laughs> That's my favorite all-time joke. Yeah. It's very sad. Yes, it's very sad. Yes. Who can make you laugh the easiest and send, not only the hardest, but like the— Zach Galifianakis. Can do the smallest thing. Yes. As an actor, but as a stand-up, he has my number. <laughs> when I do a show at Largo and Zach's one of my guests, I am giddy. And I just stand out of the side. I stand on the side of the stage and roar. He destroys me. Tig Notaro also destroys me in that way. Yeah. You know, yeah. Did you ever audition for Saturday Night Live? Yes, I did. I auditioned twice. How'd it go? Well, one time was the same night that uh, David Spade and uh, Rob Schneider auditioned. That was at the Improv in Los Angeles. And as I was making my way to the stage, Lauren uh, Michaels left. (laughs) So I went on stage, and I remember Jeanine Garofalo and Dana Gould were over on the side, like, to support me. Yeah, yeah. And, uh... I said to the audience, I go, do you know what just happened? They had no idea. I explained that. I told them, I said, I can't do my set. I'm just distraught. Wow. And I got a standing ovation because they liked me. That shows you can never lose really being in the moment, being yourself. The other time was I performed uh, at a gig in New York. It was south of Houston. What was that one gig that was south of Houston? The Boston? No, no, not Boston. Boston's in the village. It It was one night a week. Anyhow. Not Rafifi, because Rafifi was... No, 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 no. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It had a name for it. I forgot the name. I don't think eating it? Where's Eating It? No, Eating It was here. Maybe it was oh. Eating It. I don't remember. Point being is... <laughs> sure. Place was packed. Yeah. I went up, tore the roof off the place. They told my manager, uh, it was uh, Marcy Klein, we're really only looking for women. So I didn't know what to say. Yeah. You're like- so, you know, I was rejected twice. It hurt. I'd love to host Saturday Night Live, but I'm not holding my breath. You know, I'm not the kind of person that they have hosted. Yeah. I have to be a lot more popular than I am. In the old days, a comedian yeah. such as myself, without a doubt, would host it. Yeah. That's not what goes on now. There's a comedian, uh, I actually think he recently passed away. His name was Alonzo Hamburger Jones. And I did not know him. So he tagged all of his jokes by going, Hamburger. That's funny. Uh, That's you, really funny. Yeah, it's, it is really funny. He wears a big cowboy hat. I really suggest War. He wore a big cowboy yeah. hat. If you could make up a similar catchphrase to say at the end of lines, what would it be? Great grandma. I just made that up now. But yeah, great grandma. After every time would be so weird. Especially with me just just, just telling these rambling things and whatever this go. Great grandma. As of now, I say jism a lot for no reason. I say perm a lot. I say lotion a lot. Perm, like the holiday perm? Yeah, perm, lotion. I say grandma. Ah, but great grandma. Like also like a southern comment. Yeah. Great grandma. That's it for another episode of Good One. Season 9 of Curb Your Enthusiasm is currently airing on HBO. Handsome, Jeff Garland's most recent movie, is available to stream on Netflix. Jeff's no longer on Twitter, but if for some reason you want to follow like the ghost of where his account used to be, it's at the Jeff Garland. Good One is produced by Jordan Bell and Jennifer Lai. Justin D. Wright did our theme song. Write a review and rate the show on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, please. 
And hey, if you know anyone who might like the podcast, maybe tell them. What the heck? You can email any comments, questions, or laughing around suggestions to goodonepodcast at gmail.com. I am Jesse David Fox, and you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. We'll be back with a new episode next Monday. Have a good one.